My name's, uh, I already said my name, Kyle Hernandez. I serve in security, and I'm going to do the small groups. And sometimes I barbecue at the park, too. That's kind of my favorite thing. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 4, page 55, 1, and the Bibles in back of the pews. So they're right in front of you guys. There's some Bibles. All right. Here we go. When he saw the crowds, he went on the mountainside. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of God. Well, as I said, we have quite a few people out, so we're winging it today. And it might feel that way, but <laughs> we're making it work. All right, we're, we're getting back into Matthew chapter five in our series, Kingdom Life, and we're looking at the gospel according to Matthew as he wrote down and recorded the life and ministry of Jesus. There's a quote that I came across from Oswald Chambers. We'll have it up here on the board. It says, if Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is to tantalize us by erecting a standard we cannot come anywhere near. But if by being born again from above, we know him first as savior, we know that he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches we should be. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. I'll read that one part, the the second half, one more time. He came to make us what he teaches we should be. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. And that's from Oswald Chambers. Our text today brings us to what is undoubtedly the the most well-known, famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And that extends from chapter five through chapter seven, and specifically, we'll be looking at the beginning portion of that, which is the Beatitudes. And if you do have your Bibles in front of you, then you'll probably notice something about the Beatitudes that's different than the text before it and after it. And that is, it stands and is arranged as if it's a poem. It looks like it's a poetic utterance. And that's because it is written in that poetic style, the style that we see in the Psalms or Ecclesiastes. That particular section, those first few verses of chapter five, are written in such a way that we would call them like wisdom literature. And the thing about wisdom literature is they're not promises as in, if you do this, you get this. But they're statements about reality to help us understand what is Not if you, then this will come to be. And that's an important distinction to make, and we'll look a little bit further into that as we go forward. But we're looking particularly at this, and we're exploring what does it mean fundamentally to live the kingdom life. And it is here that we see Jesus' ministry actually begin. Up till now, we've been surveying Jesus' life as a young person, as he, he being brought into the world, and then uh, in the last chapter, as he makes a move from his hometown Nazareth to Capernaum uh, on the Sea of Galilee, and he launches his ministry there, and chapter four concluded with 
him launching this ministry and healing and delivering and proclaiming the kingdom of God in the vein of John the Baptist. And this gained him quite a, quite a big following. He, he started to have people show up out of nowhere. In fact, it said at the end of chapter four that a great crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan began to come to Jesus as they heard about these healings and these miracles and, and this teacher, Jesus, and what he was doing on the Sea of Galilee. So before we work our way through this text in Matthew 5, there are a few things we need to talk about. Um, so much of this section of Matthew is influenced by the prophecies of particularly one prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecies speak heavily into what we're about to read. And in fact, we had just read Isaiah 61 at the beginning of the service, and Jesus had just read it in the narrative at the synagogue about Isaiah 61, and now we're going to see other prophecies in Isaiah that Matthew is drawing on to complete this picture of what Jesus is doing right here in this time. We've already seen how Matthew, he selects Old Testament prophecies as he's constructing. So you, you imagine, you know, I don't know how you grew up or how you imagined the Bible being written, but when I was younger, I imagined you know, someone walking along with Jesus and writing you know, writing Matthew down as he's walking with Jesus. And by the time Jesus dies, Matthew's written. And that's not the case at all. These books were written many, many years later. And some people see that as a problem because, well, testimony over time. But we have to think of the, that particular day and time in the first century. These written down testimonies, first of all, were very expensive to, to write. They required scrolls and they required scribes to do it and it was a very expensive undertaking to have anything like this done. And so you wouldn't do it just haphazardly. It wasn't until later in their life when witnesses began to get old and they realized that these people were going to die who witnessed this firsthand, we need to get them on record. We need to get them on record that they began to write the Gospels. And so Matthew, later as he's writing the gospel, he gets some freedom inspired by the Holy Spirit to look at it and go, what is the Holy Spirit through me writing about Jesus? And the reason we have four gospels is each one of them were moved by the Holy Spirit to write and highlight particular areas of Jesus' life in connection to other things. And Matthew specifically writes about Jesus who is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And this is why we see the repetition of, and so it was done to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken through so and so, because Matthew's purpose is to show the connection between the prophecies of the Old Testament, the utterances of the Old Testament, the writings of the Old Testament, and how they directly connect to this, this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah that was spoken about. He is the coming Messiah, and he shows how Jesus fulfills that. In Isaiah chapter two, speaking of the messianic age, as Isaiah receives a vision from the Lord of nations and peoples streaming into the land and streaming to the mountain of the Lord to receive God's teaching, Isaiah chapter two says, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. Or Isaiah chapter 40 says, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. 
Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. If, if you really want a deeper, more robust understanding of what Matthew's talking about, then an exploration of the book of Isaiah is very, very helpful. And in fact, if you're not already, just hop on to our Bible reading plan. We have uh, some of the notes out there at the, in the lobby at the Welcome Center because it just so happens in a couple days we're gonna be in Isaiah. And it'd be a great time for you to track along through Isaiah and begin to make some of those hyperlinks yourself. It's a great companion read. So last week we witnessed that the Messiah King Jesus, he called his first disciples. You guys remember that? We had, uh, we had Peter and Andrew and we had James and John who were called to follow Jesus. And it wasn't so much an invitation as it was a command. Come follow me and I'm going to do this in your life. Well, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah who will come, and, and remember Isaiah, when we talk about the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah's written 700 years before Jesus. So the Isaiah, the Isaiah prophecies tell of this Messiah who will come, and this Messiah will have a teaching and a proclamation ministry. His ministry will be one of teaching. He will teach us his ways, it said. Go to the mountain, he will teach us his way so that we may walk in his path. Messiah will be a teacher. And what Jesus is about to begin to do is just that. He's going to lay out for us God's ideal design for humanity. God's ideal design for humanity. And whereas humanity did, was, did what was right in their own eyes in the Garden of Eden, and as a result, we're suffering under this constant weight of destru the destructive power of sin, Jesus will show us what is good and what is right in the eye of God. And we need that. We have so many competing messages telling us what is good and right for us. We need someone to set for us the stage. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? Part of Matthew's approach too is to draw these parallels between Jesus and the prophet who came before named Moses. And Moses, you know much of his story about the Red Sea and the deliverance of the, the people of God. And after that, as they came in, they came to the Mount Sinai. And what did Moses do? He went up on the hill, right? He went up the hill and he received what? The Ten Commandments and the law, right? He received the law from God. He received God's utterance. Another way of putting it, he received God's way. And then he came to bring it to the people. Well, like Moses who ascended a mountain to receive the word of God for the people of Israel, so Jesus is taking his place atop a mountain to deliver a word. But unlike Moses, who was acting as a human mediator between God and man, Jesus is the God-man, the eternally existent second person in the Trinity, God himself in the flesh, and he is now going to declare what it means to be his people. I think it's a message we ought to listen to. So when the, he saw the crowds, the crowds had heard his ministry, they heard of all the miracles and signs and wonders. And when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. You can imagine on the rising, the rising hills to the west, of the Sea of Galilee that began to make their way up toward Jerusalem down in the south. On those rising hills, Jesus sits down and his disciples gather around him. 
And to sit down for a teacher of his time was actually the assumed position of an authoritative teacher. We don't do that so much now. Uh, typically, we stand higher than everyone, as I am right now. <laughs> but authoritative teachers in that time would sit down and people would gather around them to receive the word from the teacher. And so Jesus sits down. And the good news of the kingdom of God is always spread through a message. It's always spread through a message. Still today, the good news, the gospel is an, a message. It's an announcement. It's a story. It's one of those reasons why you and I as believers, if you have put your hope and faith in Christ and you've received the commission to come and follow him, we cannot, we cannot get away from the reality that the gospel is not me living a good life so everyone sees it. It's not, that's incomplete. That's good, that's incomplete. The gospel is a message, always. The gospel is an announcement of the king, always. The gospel is a proclamation of this story, and if you can, if you can hear the word story without thinking fiction, it's this proclamation of a story of how God entered the world and changed things forever and began to reveal and announce a new kingdom and a new humanity that we all get to participate in. That's what it means to share the gospel. It's not simply about I do good things, people see those good things, and they're really happy for me. Having settled in, the disciples around him and the crowds just beyond the disciples, Jesus speaks again. The most powerful and potent message ever spoken, and he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I'll just take a little sidebar here, just for a moment, if I could have it. Sidebar, if you hear those words and you go, okay, and remember, Jesus on a hilltop, the most earth-shattering, <laughs> profound message ever preached begins with blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Let that sink in for a moment. Let even your apathy to it, if, that, if, you're, if you're indifferent to something like that, if that doesn't cause you to go either huh or yes, sit in that for a moment and go why? That's powerful statements. It's upside down. It's backward, it doesn't make sense. If you've lived in this world for any amount of time and you've been swayed by this world, the way of this world, that doesn't make sense. That's not blessed. <laughs> and this section that we're, we're entering into is called the Beatitudes, and it's not just a fun way, I, I don't know, maybe you've heard a preacher do this before, apologies to that preacher, but it's not just a fun way of saying, these are the attitudes you should be. <laughs> be attitudes. No, 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 Beatitudes is, is from the Latin and it, it basically just means blessed. Beatitudes means blessed. And these are the blessed or the blessed statements. And if you look at Matthew 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 3 through 11, you will, uh, you will see nine of these blessed statements. Blessed are, and there's a technical term for them, they're called macarisms. Macarisms are this blessed are, da, 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 for dot, 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 whatever that is, is a macarism. And you'll see some of those in the Psalms, Ecclesiastes and elsewhere. There are nine of them here in chapter five. 
And this word blessed or blessed, this is a loaded word. It's a loaded word for us because there are really two dangers that we might have when we hear the word blessed. The first one is when we hear it in the context of this scripture, for instance, we're tempted to hear it as a sort of description of God bestowing some special extraordinary favor on us. Blessed, like a, wow, God blessed you really good there, man. Or like, wow, God gave you something really special or treated you with favor there. Man, man, I'm blessed because I had parking favor. I got the front parking spot, you know, at, at big lots. Does anyone shop at big lots? Is that <laughs> man, I'm blessed because God gave me that money to pay that bill. I'm blessed. And God does show favor. God does bestow provision. Me and Adrian could tell you countless testimonies of the time that God provided when we were in desperate need. God provides grace at times. The Bible says so, but that's not particularly what this, mean, this word means, blessed or blessed, at least not in this particular context. And the second danger flows out of that first one, and it, namely that we're in danger if we read the Beatitudes as a sort of new law for us to obey. The Beatitudes as some sort of tit-for-tat kind of arrangement. And what do I mean? I mean, oh, I'll receive God's blessing if I make myself poor in spirit. I just gotta really try to be poor in spirit. Or, oh, I'll receive God's blessing, you know, if I'm a peacemaker. So I'm gonna go make peace because I wanna receive God's blessing. Or if I'm pure in heart, or if I hunger and thirst, or, or you know, uh, I, I want God's blessing so bad, so I have to, you know, I need to mourn. I need to mourn. Do something bad to me so I can mourn. <laughs> Hit me in the face with a two by four. I need to mourn. You know, it's if you do these things, then God will bless you. And, and actually, that's not what's happening here in the Beatitudes at all. And that's because blessed, or to be the blessed ones, or blessed are, is the state of inner satisfaction, joy, and peace. That is only the result of a covenantal relationship with God. To be blessed is the inner satisfaction, joy, and peace that is the result of a covenantal relationship with God. It cannot be experienced apart from relationship with creator God. It is not in the money you have received or the parking favor bestowed on you. It is in the relationship, the covenantal relationship you have with your creator. And blessed is about human flourishing human flourishing. It's life according to God's perfect design. What does life according to God's perfect design look like? Humanity is supposed to have the life-giving, life-sustaining, flourishing connection with their good creator. We're all supposed to have that. And we know that when you're in Christ, you, that connection is made through Christ to our creator, God, in Christ, and when you're outside of that, you're distant or separated from that good, life-sustaining, life-giving, flourishing connection with your good creator. Blessed does not have anything to do with your external circumstances whatsoever. You can be blessed and have terrible external circumstances. Blessed 
are you, are you, are you wealthy? Are, are you poor? Doesn't matter. It's immaterial to blessed. Are, are you in a world of pain and suffering because life has come down on you so hard? Or are you living on top of the world? Doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with blessed. Are, are you popular? Lots of accolades. People look to you. Or are you invisible? Doesn't matter. See, we tend to think of these things, uh, we think, tend to think that these things, whether it's popularity or money or, or, uh, uh, or being free from pain and suffering, those things are what matter. And if we get the formula just right, if we tweak it just right in our lives, we can get it so we can have the right amount of money we want, we can mitigate the suffering in our life, and we can have just the amount of popularity and being liked that we like. And if I achieve those things, I'm blessed. And that has nothing to do with what the Bible's talking about. Nothing at all. There is a difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive in the Bible. The Bible sometimes will describe what is, and sometimes it'll prescribe what to do. The Beatitudes are descriptive. They're telling us what is. And you may work your life away. You may work every day. You may wake up with all of that motivation. Look at all the, the TikToks or the, the Instagrams or the Facebook stories you can to get your daily motivation so you can get out there and kick some butt and earn the amount of money you want so you can have the happy life. You can do all of those things and try your hardest to change your status from poor to rich and yet die not in a bit blessed state, but maybe in a far worse state than you ever have been. Blessed is a new way to be human. What Jesus is doing in his teaching here is not giving us a list of spiritual giants or heroes of the faith that we're supposed to imitate or just another list of moral behaviors that describe what true piety looks like and, and, and how we can obey him and get what we want out of this situation. But what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he's redefining who the people of God are. He's drawing a box and he's saying, this is who the people of God are. They are ones whose lives look like this way of being. God's people are ones whose lives look like this way of being. And so the Beatitudes, we have to approach them not as an entrance exam to the kingdom. I've heard it preached before where the, uh, the Beatitudes are like your citizenship uh, exam. <laughs> Am I poor in spirit? Yet. Am I mourning? Yet. Am I pure in heart? Not yet. Got to go work on that before I can get my citizenship. It's not what it is. It is an announcement of citizenship. This is what it is. It's descriptive, and that's key. To be blessed is not about getting the good stuff. It's about having the good one. It is not about getting the good stuff. It's about having the good one and truly needing nothing else. One of the features of the beatitude is how upside down they are to the way of living that accords with the way of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And that does not sound blessed, not to our earthly ears. 
So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus begins his sermon with this, and again, it doesn't mean to be materially poor. It doesn't mean divest yourself of all your possessions so that you can be poor, and suddenly that being poor is a virtue in and of itself. Some people get that wrong as well. They act as if material poverty alone puts you into this special class of people that God is all about you because you're materially poor no matter how you live or who you are or what you believe. And that's at least not what's being said here. Poor in spirit means this. It means that you recognize you are spiritually bankrupt. You are spiritually bankrupt. Poor in spirit means that your debt of sin, your self-righteousness and your rebellion against God is so enormous that you could never satisfy that debt, ever. Never, ever. It is recognizing that your good works, even your good works and your goodness is worthless to paying back the debt of that sin. Worthless. In view of, of Isaiah 64, 6, again, drawing in these themes from Isaiah, all of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of our righteous, a polluted garment, by the way, that's a super nice way of putting it. The real word is gross, and we're not gonna talk about it. <laughs> it's bad. It's polluted, it's disgusting, it's unclean. Unclean, all your righteous acts are like a polluted gar garment. Because of sin, the being poor in spirit means because of sin, you are spiritually destitute and can do nothing, absolutely nothing to save yourself. Before a perfect and holy and righteous God, your sinful heart and all the sins you have done have made you utterly unacceptable. He is pure, you are unclean. You are dirty, wretched, poor, Blind. That's what poor in spirit means. Spiritually bankrupt. But it's more than just seeing that. It's more than just acknowledging that. Because it is accompanied with that knowledge, front and center, my spiritual bankruptcy. It also is accompanied with an end of the line trust that God is the only one who is able to save you from this miserable sin condition. I know who I am in and of myself, wretched, poor, blind, in debt over my head, spiritually bankrupt, unable to save myself. My righteous acts are as if dirty, unclean garments. My goodness, my inherent goodness. Most people are good. Most people are good. Most people are inherently good. Good, that's not biblical, period. If you, if you believe that, that's not biblical. We can sit down, we can have a couple counseling sessions. That's not biblical at all. Most people are not inherently good. We need to see our condition as it is, but in light of the fact that God is the only one who can save us. And in acknowledging the bad news, 
We acknowledge the bad news, and then we believe what Isaiah chapter 57, 15 says. The good news. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this. I live in a high and holy place, and I live with the oppressed and the lowly in spirit. And with the oppressed and the lowly of spirit, I will revive the spirit of the lowly, and I will revive the heart of the oppressed. God is your only hope, and he lives with the lowly in spirit. Jesus says the flourishing way to live, the flourishing way of living is whoever has that understanding. The one who has come to see that they are living the good life in the kingdom of God because they know who they are and they know who their God is. The good news of the kingdom begins here. And you don't have a gospel if you don't see this. You don't have a gospel If you believe anything other than that, you don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is gospel, it's good news. That's good news. It is no gospel at all if the good news that you preach to yourself on a daily basis is that you're an inherently good person. And that you simply make mistakes and oopsie daisy, I just hope everyone can get along with me throughout life, you know, I'm sorry, I just make lots of mistakes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I'm good. That's not gospel. The gospel is knowing who you are and knowing how everyone else sees you. And more than that, knowing how you, in view of God, the holy, perfect one, who you are. And then saying, but I trust him. He's the only one who can save me. There's no other gospel. There's no other one. The good news of the kingdom of God is that you are not good enough, but that God makes his dwelling. God makes his home with the lowly in spirit. The citizens of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom of God, they have this totally unworldly view. And sometimes people accuse you, you have a worldly view, you have a worldly life. The citizens, they have an unworldly view and they have an unworldly hope. Each of the Beatitudes states or begins with a state Blessed are the poor in spirit, and ends with a reason for their blessedness. What is the reason for the blessedness of the poor in spirit? Because they receive the king and the kingdom, and that's why they're blessed. Not because they have riches, not because their life goes well, they have no suffering, they have no sickness, they have no troubles in this world. That's not the reason they're blessed. They're blessed because they receive the king, and they receive the kingdom, Theirs is the riches, theirs is the glory, theirs is the hope, theirs is the life. Riches that never rust, glory that never fades, hope that never disappoints, and life that never ends. Another way that you could say this is that the kingdom of heaven consists of those blessed poor in spirit, and that all of the kingdom's benefits are theirs. And if you notice in that scripture, it's all present tense. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's theirs. Now, we hear kingdom of heaven and some of us will probably immediately think of like our our forever cloud home in the future where we get to float around and do weird things. I don't know. 
Like in Christ, we've received that deposit already here now. We already have access to all those benefits. Ephesians says so. It says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed, again, that same word. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. They're ours right now. All of them are ours. You're blessed if you are poor in spirit. The kingdom and the kingdom resources are yours. And that leads us to blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Next, Jesus says that the flourishing citizens of the kingdom are ones who mourn. And again, we have a paradox here. It's almost like someone is saying, happy are the unhappy ones. And that doesn't sound right. Christians, citizens of the kingdom though, we are told, live with a mournfulness to their life. And I'm sure some of you who've been in the faith for many years know this. You live with a mournfulness in this life. Christians are not utopians who see reality through some rose-colored glasses. This mournfulness begins with our own sin in view. The presence of sin's destructive power at work within our own hearts brings us to contrition as disciples of Jesus Christ, especially mournful over the part we play in this sin mess and the part that we perpetuate in society and with the people around us, the ones we love most. We mourn over the fact that we hurt people out of our sin. We mourn. Disciples of Jesus see that this world is in a fallen state. They see the destruction that humans inflict on one another. They see the news and they're mournful over the endless trail of senseless death, senseless oppression and hostility in this world. They experience this world not as a happy-go-lucky perverted ignorance, but with a brokenness over the brokenness of all things. They mourn for the brokenness as sickness tears them or their loved one apart, as cancer slowly wins in their body, as miscarriage sucks the air of joyful expectancy out of life, as their marriage grows colder and colder and colder and they begin to feel the numbing effect on their own heart. They mourn over the immigrant who has no place to call home, who is wandering the streets of a foreign land and is looked by fellow human beings as if they're a disease and a parasite. They mourn as everything around them changes. Why does everything have to change? They mourn. They mourn. But they also wait. They mourn, but they wait. For what? For a kingdom and for a city whose foundations are the unchanging, immutable God. We're told that in Hebrews. We wait for a city whose very foundations are God. Won't change. All of those tragedies, all of those, those, those suffering, all of that is change. We want a city that won't change. They, hope with, they, they wait with hope for a coming king who will finally, once for all, bring justice to this world. 
A coming king where every justice will be re- injustice will be reversed and every untrue word ever spoken about you will be demolished. And every tear that was cried over the brokenness of this world or the pain in your heart or the pain of your family or your children or your children's children, every tear cried in this broken world will be vindicated. They live in the tension of the in-between, the median, between what is and what will be. And they do something that, that everything in this world screams against. Everything in this world says, that does not make sense to do in your state. The believer, the Christian, the disciple, they wait on the Lord. They wait. They hope. They mourn and they wait and they trust. They mourn and they wait and they trust. We mourn, we wait, and we trust. And we will be comforted. We will be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. As my brother Brad told me yesterday, we do all our mourning here. We do all of our mourning here. And we leave an eternity with none. So get it in. <laughs> There's plenty to go around. We do it all here. But a day is coming where it'll be gone. Nothing in this sermon, amen, amen. Nothing in this sermon is about how we become a Christian. This is important to hear as we close up. Nothing in this sermon is about how you become a Christian. This sermon is about the faith and the works and the fruit that no one can have or do unless they already are a Christian. But hearing the blessed state of what it means to be a child of God, to to believe, I call to you, If you have never before put your trust or hope in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, now, now is the time. Today is the day. And I say to you, if you are mourning, but you are mourning with hope today, remember this about the kingdom of God. That day is coming. That day is coming. It is nearer today than yesterday. And what day is that? What day do we hope for? The child of God, yours is the kingdom, both now and forevermore. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people 
and God himself will be with them and, and will be there. God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things, the former things, have passed away. And then, one, seated on a throne, said, look. The word look is behold. Behold. I am making everything new. And he also said, write, write this down because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of water, the waters of life. The one who conquers will inherit all of these things and I will be his God and he will be my son and my daughter. We mourn and we wait. We mourn and we wait. And one day, our waiting will be joy. We look into the eyes of the suffering. We watch as bodies waste away. We see the pain as families go through turmoil and trouble. And, tr and we weep and we mourn. And we see as our marriages fall apart. And we weep and we mourn and we pray out for God for a time and a kingdom. And a place where all will be made right and we believe with faith this will be it is coming and it is closer than ever before and we say oh Lord haste the day